open to expert insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 16th of August, 2023. The topic is the impact of climate change on mental health. On the panel, we have Dr. Chloe Watford, Sciencia PhD scholar and Black Dog Institute researcher. Dr. Charles Lefebvre, psychiatrist and psychotherapist at Psychology for Safe Climate. And Carla, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session, we have Dr. Sarah Barker. Okay, welcome to the impact of climate change on mental health. On our panel today, we have Dr. Chloe Watfern, Dr. Charles Lefevre, and Carla. So I would like um, to warmly welcome them and also to um, invite you to introduce yourselves. So, um, Chloe, would you like to make a start? Sure. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Chloe Watfern. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Black Dog Institute, part of the Arts Based Knowledge Translation Lab. And I'm a research associate of, of Sphere, a health research network in Sydney. Great. Thank you, Chloe. Charles. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah. I'm on uh, Wurundjeri country as well in Nam, Melbourne. Um, I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist in private practice. And I've been working with psychology for a safe climate for over 10 years now. I'm deputy executive director. Great. Thank you, Charles. And Carla, welcome. My name is Carla Hume. I'm a plague marina and Chihuahua woman, and I um, am a part of the Black Dog Indigenous Lived Experience Centre. Fantastic to have you here. Thanks, Carla. So, um, Chloe and Charles, there are some different terms for climate distress, eco-anxiety, climate anxiety. What are your preferred terms for um Climate to, yeah, what's your preferred term for this and why? We prefer the term climate distress because it's uh, one of our concerns about the term eco or climate anxiety is that it uh, can pathologise. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, the term climate distress is sufficiently broad and encompasses a whole lot of interrelated feelings. Um I think the other thing about climate distress is that really it is a healthy response to the climate situation and can uh, can lead to um, climate engagement and action. Yeah, I guess holding on to the word distress um, and differentiating that from climate emotions because, like Charles said, I think engagement and deep concern for the climate and the climate crisis um, can bring up this whole plethora of emotional responses that aren't all um, quote-unquote negative, like um, feelings of grief or um, rage even maybe. The, and, you know, is rage a negative response? <laughs> Not always. Um, so I guess for the context of this audience, like thinking about distress is also when these feelings can become overwhelming or lead to paralysis or other kinds of um, responses that make it really hard to get through a day or um, disengage you from your community. Yeah, sure, sure. Thank you both. So, yeah, just yeah. sorry, just to follow on from yeah. what Chloe was saying. Yeah, because a climate distress. Yeah, if it perhaps particularly if it's not adequately helped, can lead to sort of more frank um, mental disorder. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. No, that's important. So what are some of the different responses that we see to climate change and climate crises in the community? Chloe? Well, as I started to mention, you know, I'm interested in the, the emotional spectrum of responses and um, that can be anywhere from denial to rage to grief and often a you know, we're oscillating between all of them at any one time. And as an individual, um, it's hard to stay in one emotion for very long, as we'll find from experience. So I think um, part of um, the way we need to understand it is, you know, um, resisting categories as well and resisting um, kind of, you know, neat diagnoses. <laughs> um, but certainly as we've seen these escalating climate um, events, you know, natural disasters that we're seeing unfold across the Northern Hemisphere and, you know, in Australia, uh, communities have been 
hit by multiple natural disasters over the past three years alone. And I think that that's probably meant that there's just this growing felt experience of climate change in communities and so a growing concern um, and denial perhaps is, you know, we tend to think, I think we tend to elevate the fact that more people are in denial where in fact a much larger proportion of people are really concerned and have already had direct experience of climate change. Um, so there's a growing need for support. Absolutely. Thanks, Chloe. Carla, what are your thoughts about the different responses? I think when a climate event happens, there's that normal situational distress that, you know, really impacts everybody equally. Um, And then there's the additional grief that's felt by First Nations people because of the loss of the ecosystem and and the connection to the country and the innate spiritualism um, that's connected with that. But when it comes to climate change, and I, you know, I... I speak on behalf of some of our brothers and sisters in the Pacific too. It's it's a broadly Indigenous um, concern. It's the disempowerment and the lack of self-determination. We have no control um, in most instances over protecting country. Um, and when you are raised with this innate drive um, to protect country, and that includes waterways and, um, and people and the animals, and yet you have no control and you're working you're walking in a modern world that does not truly respect your perspective um and it's really hard and there are so many emotions that are connected with that disempowerment um and anger frustration or two that come to mind um and you just feel as if you have no capability to actually impact change Um, and so many of our young people just get to this point of frustration and feeling downtrodden and those emotions then turn into things such as depression anxiety um, feeling overloaded and overwhelmed Um, and most of the time uh, when you're younger you don't have those guides around you such as your elders to kind of explain to you why you're feeling the way you're feeling and how you can work with those feelings and try and address them in a, a healthy way yeah yeah because they're really natural responses to something huge that's happening to something so precious they are yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks Carla thanks for sharing that um Charles what about the effects of the climate crisis that you see in your clinical practice hmm yeah, thank you. Yeah, look, uh, well, I suppose I've got two practices in a way because there's a psychology for a safe climate practice where, yeah, th- thank you, Chloe and Carla, you've sort of pretty much covered exactly the sort of things we see really in terms of fear for the future and uh, anger, anger with the fossil fuel companies, the government, and what Carla, what you were saying about powerlessness. I mean, that's such a a, a difficult issue and creating frustration, but also people sort of becoming apathetic potentially as well because of it. Um, so we also see a number of uh, particular issues such as, uh, for example, the whole issue about uh, people wondering whether to have children in, 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 this, in this time. Um, so that's uh, another particular thing we, we see there. In terms of my clinical practice, which is just a sort of regular um, psychotherapy practice in a way, uh, it's different because um, uh, many people are aware of, uh, of, of climate change intellectually, um, but not necessarily emotionally engaged. So a lot of people... Uh, can turn a blind eye um, to the painful reality because it is, I guess that's the other thing, it is so painful to engage with um, and people understandably want to defend against that. But as Chloe was saying and and Carl, as time time goes on, people will be forced to engage with it. It's not a a choice. in my practice as well, a lot of people do show climate distress and sometimes those, particularly if they've come from a traumatised background or have experienced a climate event, are obviously very aware and in touch with the seriousness of it. And it can also lurk behind other presentations. For example, if someone has sort of got some sort of existential sort of depression, it's something important for us to uh, ask a question about, which uh, I'll come come to perhaps a bit later. Great. 
Thanks, Charles. Thank you. So um, to what extent does climate distress affect individuals and communities? Chloe, would you like to start? Yeah, I guess I can start close to home in Australia because um, we've had a, quite a few recent surveys that have been fairly, you know, large scale and compelling evidence, um, including um, Patrick and colleagues published a paper in uh, 2022 that showed one in 10 Australians are experiencing a kind of clinically significant, what they termed eco-anxiety. So these concerns about what's happening to the environment that are intersecting with some of those common clinical um, signs of distress. And that was a survey of over 5,000 adults. They were also looking at measures like pre-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress in that population. And um, again, there were quite you know, significant figures. So um, post-traumatic stress in 25% of that population. Um, and they're finding that, you know, this is an intersectional challenge, which is I'm really glad Carla's voiced that. Um, so it's, you know, you're more likely to experience eco-anxiety if you're coming from particular backgrounds, including young people. So we know that they're more affected, uh, but also women, which, um, you know, that's an interesting figure, I thought. And so play, there's also a kind of conversation that I often come up with in my presentations, you know, is this a privilege problem? Is is eco-anxiety, climate distress, something for people who have time to sit and think about climate change kind of abstractly. But in fact, these kinds of, you know, significant distress, feelings of powerlessness, hopelessness is more common in people from regions that might have been disadvantaged or um, having kind of socioeconomic disparities. Um, and then the other recent survey, again, published last year was focused on young people in particular. So that was a really, so that was a Mission Australia survey of 18,800 young people, 15 to 19. And that found that one in four of those people were very or extremely concerned about climate change. And that was, again, like correlating with high psychological distress. So very significant, yeah, issue. Yeah, thank you. Carla, your thoughts? I think um, Chloe and Charles covered off every area that I could possibly think of there. Um, I just, I think, um, you know, Chloe hit the nail on the head when she spoke about lower socioeconomic and regional communities. Um, and generally those are the communities that um, have been protected, in a sense, from being forced into um, this new world um, that we walk in um, and have been able to preserve some some resemblance of, of self-determination within their communities, whether that's the continuation of traditional hunting methods or things such as that. So there's some level of um, feeling and control um, of the care for country um, in those locations, but more so and more so those locations are being um, challenged by climate and the impacts of that. And, and we see that from the Torres Strait. Um, with the elders there now, you know, going to the UN to say we're losing our home. <laughs> um, this is a this is an emergency. Um, no one's listening to us, um, and you know, it's not just about the loss of land. It's it's the loss of culture, the loss of connection. Um, it's the impacts that the that the sea rising has on fisheries and food sources and so many different things. So, um, you know, I think those communities now are really facing into what some of our more city-based mob um, have been challenged with for many years um, and it's that loss of, um, you know, the, that self-determination and, and that care for country that um, we're all raised with. Totally. Thanks, Carla. Charles? Um, yeah, look, I just wanted to mention a, a study, um, which I know Chloe's conversant with as well. Just, to, I think it's just a really important study in the Lancet Planetary Health in 2021 of 10,000 young people from across the world, basically. Um, and 75% said the future is frightening because of climate change. 56% felt the hu humanity was doomed. And 39% uh, were hesitant to have children. And 65% mm. felt very betrayed by government. So these are very mm. powerful figures. And uh, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, these are the sort of things we see in our in our groups as well, that, that, and, and in clinical practice, the, the whole question about um, 
whether to have children or not, for example. Mm-hmm. We we do, of course, in the groups that we we run, see, yeah, very uh, high levels of of distress and. Uh, and I guess the other thing is that as the crisis deepens, it's just going to become more so. I mean, uh, I think we're in PSC already preparing in a way for this uh, this summer, in for particularly for Southern Australia with El Nino. It, uh, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So thanks, Charles. Chloe, your experience of climate distress has really had a um, deeply informative um, uh, impact on your research. What does your research reveal about the relationship between climate change and mental health or the climate crisis and mental health? Yeah, well, I mean, my personal experience of climate distress was very much tied up with, um, well, being pregnant during the Black Summer and so what Charles is, um, you know, the I think this reproductive anxiety or, you know, thinking the future oriented concern has been very real for me and, you know, quite a a lot of thought went into my decision to have children. And, um, it was a very complex time for me. Um, and I think that's kind of driven me to really want to understand how to talk about climate change with my children as they grow up and become more aware of what's going on in the world. And I want to create a world that they can thrive in that, and that, you know, future generations can thrive in. So it's been, so I've had a, you know, my heart broken open by what's happening and really felt it very strongly. And then it's in a way it has been a kind of strangely adaptive, if we want to use that term, in that I've been motivated to really um, take action in a meaningful way and think about, you know, thinking about where I was at Black Dog Institute at the time that I was really struggling and then how I could affect change in my networks and through my skills in research and, and creative methods. So um, I guess that's the little bit of background about, and it helps illustrate some of the things that we do find in the research and that I found in my own research about, um, you know, the complexity and um, the importance of not pathologizing this distress and using it, thinking of it as a strength as well and a way to, um, you know, yeah motivate people to act. But just in terms, I guess, jumping back to the other part of your question, which is more related to the relationship between climate change and mental health more broadly, because I kind of wanted to step, take a step back because we've gone deep into, I guess, climate distress and thinking about these emotional responses to awareness of climate change or the impacts of climate change. Um, and I did see something in the chat as well, or Q&A, and I will put the reference in there to the paper I mentioned once I get a moment or maybe I'll, yeah, when there's a lull in the conversation. But um, I also just wanted to refer to these kind of this global landscape of the fact that climate change and mental health intersect in many ways. And so there are these really interesting and kind of shocking studies that also show that things like warmer weather and heat waves will increase um presentations to emergency departments for suicidality or, um, you know, increase um, aggression and rates um, rates of violence. So I wanted to just step back there a second and, um, you know, pr- think about that broader context of the relationship and the fact that uh, as we, as the world warms, um, we need to be kind of acknowledging all the ways that we need to build good mental health to survive and to thrive. Um, And so that's something that I'm also really um, passionate about in my work. Yeah, terrific, terrific. Um, So, Carla, First Nations people care deeply for country. You live in a flood-affected and flood-prone area. Um, What's been your response to experiences of climate crises given this especially precious relationship with country? Yeah, um, I guess for me personally, I was a teenager when I experienced my first climate event um, and it was very scary and there was all those, that situational distress but there was also these overwhelming feelings that I didn't really understand and it wasn't until probably a year later that I was still having those um, feelings and, you know, it was a, a deep loss and grief. Um, 
and I just I, I no one really could explain them to me um, and it wasn't until um, I started speaking to local elders that I really started to get guidance on those feelings and that they were completely normal and justified and um, that you know it was because of our connection with country and it's programmed into our DNA and and you know we also have this innate spiritualism that's connected to that care for country um, and that's why we feel the feelings that we feel and that's why those feelings are sustained for a longer period than just the standard situational distress response. So, you know, for me, it took some time to really understand why. Um, when I went through my second flood um, only a couple of years ago in the same location, you know, something that constantly, you know, I remember in 2011 they said, oh, you know, once in a lifetime flood, <clears throat> It's now we've flooded three times, you know, two pretty significant times where there was um, significant loss. And um, from a Western concept, they think about the loss of houses, but I think of the loss of an ecosystem. The Brisbane River feeds into a creek watercourse that actually um, runs near my house. Uh, where I live now, um, that ecosystem is so important for sustaining the life of the animals that um, live around it. Um, and what people don't understand is that when you decimate an ecosystem, it sometimes will never come back. Um, we look at the changes happening at College Crossing and, and we've got sharks there where there never used to be sharks before. We used to be able to swim there and it was safe. And because of the flooding events, um, it's permanently changed. Um, how the river feeds itself and the banks of the river are much higher than they used to be because there's been erosion from the flood events. Um, and now we're looking at the prospect of our platypus um, population um, out here um, possibly facing impacts from, um, you know, these flood events and the changes to the landscape. And there's such great sadness with that because there's nothing we can do. There's so, so much disempowerment. So, you know, for, for me personally, I innately know that these things shouldn't happen. <laughs> um, we, we as people would never come in and change the water course to direct to a different location because we know how that decimates. We do cold burning because we know that a cold burn will allow for that area to have food for the next six months, whereas a hot burn will decimate that area for two years and make it inhabitable while killing many ground-dwelling animals who aren't quick. Um, we know that a flood event will kill most burrowing animals if the flood waters go into those areas that they're not supposed to go to. Animals are smart, but if a watercourse is not supposed to go there and a, within a year that watercourse has moved there, well, that animal's not expecting that. <laughs> so the, the human damage that development does um, impacts how we feel and it impacts how the country reacts and, and it's such a bigger picture thing for us. Yeah, thanks, Carla. That that's so much to think about there. Yeah, thank you, thank you. What helps people cope with climate distress, Chloe? That's the million dollar question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's something I have been exploring a lot, both you know personally trying to cope with what mm -hmm. I'm finding out about what's happening in the world and and through our research here at the Black Dog Institute you know as a as a creative person I found that creative responses where you're able to enable to connect with others and make meaning from what's going on and find you know avenues for sharing why you care with others is a really um, helpful way to cope and that's what I've kind of begun to do through my own through my own work um, and, you know, that's kind of supported by what I found in the, in the literature around kind of coping styles and um, the idea that finding meaning-focused coping is a, a really kind of a helpful way of navigating some of the feelings that arise when we see what's happening to this world, um, which means really tapping into like the deeper values that you hold um, of justice or of beauty or of community and finding ways to um, kind of honour them through the work that you might do to, I like to say, tending the world um, because we can't fix this problem. It's too big for any one of us to fix alone. And so we need to find ways instead to tend and, you know, to, um, to care as best we can 
um, and but not feel like that responsibility is all on our shoulders. And so I guess in my research, um, as I said, as a creative and as a as an artist, I find ways to bring people together um, and kind of be able to talk and share and make together and spread ideas. And um, I find in these kind of collective settings where we can we can gather and talk um, and make these like emergent solutions arise, which we might not have um, expected and people find things that um, delight them or drive them more forwards that, um, yeah, they might not have expected. So that's something really exciting in the work that I've been doing um, to help facilitate people to find that and and to facilitate conversations where you can hold the grief and the anger, but also the, dare I say, hope, you know, the um, the joy of coming together in, in kind of response to such a important issue. And that can be, because that can be incredibly, you know, fortifying and create so much meaning in a life to, to know, you know, and that's what, you know, First Nations people across the world have, um, you know, you know that duty and that responsibility to care for country and for people for the the you know um, family that is the other living things in our ecosystems. That's you know that's like an ancient wisdom that we have lost. So, um, you know, I in my own way try to build that connection up um, again for people and um, that joy. And you know, I've learned a lot from. Charles and psychology for a safe climate in um, that process. So I'll be really grateful to learn more from Charles today, but also from wonderful, um, you know, Aboriginal elders and and leaders. And um, I think that that knowledge and wisdom is so crucial to how we can cope and to value and empower people to, to lead us. Um, without putting the burden on those most affected by climate change as well. So always being aware of, you know, the fights that need to be led by those people in their own, you know, for justice and um, decolonization, for example. Um, so these are all, these are all kind of little tidbits of wisdom that I've learned along the way. Yeah, great. Thanks, Chloe. Carla, what helps you cope with climate distress and these responses yeah before the session I actually reached out to quite a few mobs that I really respect and who themselves have have gone through some climate events because I understand that because how I deal with something isn't always traditionally how everyone else deals with it but there was a bit of unison (laughs) um and and we we all kind of came to a similar conclusion of the things that that really help us um and the things that don't um and the things that help us is being out in nature um, also, um, you know, to Chloe's point, trying to do little things that make you feel like you have some type of impact. Um, now, for me, that's actually just disconnecting from the world, getting out on country, um, as long as I can possibly be there with nothing, just no internet, no phone, no power, um, you know, going fishing and um, all of those things and just reconnecting with the country. Or if I can't do that, you know, going down um the waterway and just picking up rubbish, um, you know, removing non-native plants, um, planting native plants, feeling as if I have some type of impact um, because doing something is better than doing nothing and just feeling deflated. Um, and so many of the mob that I spoke to felt the exact same way. Um, a lot of them also spoke to the benefits of um, clinical support, but not in a clinical setting. So, for instance, the Koori male's response to um, the Lismore flood, um, they had yarning circles pretty much weekly um, for their mob, and that was run in a culturally safe way. There was clinical psychologists and counsellors that were coming in to facilitate those services, but they were outside. They were in a format that was safe for mob but that benefited the broader community. Um, it wasn't while the practice itself was set up to facilitate a safe environment for mob um, to get clinical support to work through that situational distress and grief, there was so many positive impacts for the wider community in that response. And so when I think to myself, in a climate event, you should be looking to your First Nations community to lead that kind of healing 
because we know mm. how to do it really well. And you what do. works for us <laughs> yeah. generally works for everybody yeah. else. And the Curry Mail was a prime example of how what works for Mob can work for the entire community and was a beacon of hope for that entire community at that time. And I have no doubt there are so many people who reflect on the clinical support they got, but in that culturally safe setting. Um, and I had a young um, a young woman share with me that, she gets so distressed by going into that clinical setting. It's a, it's a, it's a trauma on a trauma. So um, she acknowledged that she really needed to speak to a psychologist, but she didn't feel safe in that setting. And she was confident enough to raise that. Not all of us are, um, but she's confident enough to raise that. And, you know, her clinician and to their credit was like, let's have our meetings outside in a park. Let's, let's remove the clinical setting because I don't want to re-traumatise you. I don't want to bring you into a setting where you don't feel safe, um, you know, and just was like, let's just change it up. Let's just go outside. And, um, I, you know, if I could say anything to any clinicians, please look for ways in which you can enrich our experience and remove us from that clinical feeling setting because most of the time we do feel traumatised going to that. So if we're coming in already traumatised, being re-traumatised, <laughs> so on and so forth, but, um, you know, with that climate distress, being in nature also is innately helpful. Um, so, um, yeah, and then, you know, looking for guidance from your local community members because some of our elders have been through quite a few events now and they really know how to deal with this stuff. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Kyla. What's the role of advocacy and action for people experiencing climate distress, Chloe? Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a, a thorny one and a wonderful one because often we say the antidote to climate distress is action. And I think that, uh, you know, and Joanna Macy's um, idea of active hope, you know, doing something, however small, to, um, to fend off and to kind of create the world you want to see. Um, and I, I really do subscribe to that, but I also, I think I want to temper that with that, the acknowledgement of, um, of kind of the risk of burnout and of um, putting so much of yourself into action that you don't have that time for self-care and um, for finding that, sometimes finding that joy and that meaning that I spoke about earlier. Um, so. Um, I think advocacy and action are really important ways to feel empowered and connecting with others to do that so that, as, again, you're not feeling alone in the advocacy and action or that the problem is yours only to solve. Um, I certainly have felt very, like, disempowered um, and small in kind of trying to, you know, write angry emails to people or... Um, and so I think that all has a really important place and for some people that might be empowering, but, um, I've learned that my own activism takes different forms sometimes and, you know, I can ebb and flow out of those types of causes. At the moment, I do feel quite enraged and, um, ready to start writing some more angry letters, but, um, for a time I didn't, <laughs> um, but in, in terms of that advocacy, I think it's just really important to, for people to recognize that activism can take many different forms and that um, we all have a creative voice to power and whether that's something like Carl is talking about, you know, caring for the waterway right near you to going to Parliament House and presenting a co-authored petition to the Prime Minister, um, they are all valid ways to take action and to be an advocate for what you believe in. So I think I'm very passionate about helping people to find their way into, into that. Um, and one example I can um, share is, um, which, you know, perhaps is not perfect, but it's me trying to um, experiment with this <laughs> through my own strengths is um, a project called the Climate Letters where we invited young students to write letters of thanks to leaders who are taking action for the climate. And so it was kind of inverting um, something that I had personally been frustrated with at the time of the the voice to power and kind of make it one of gratitude and kind of of um, of beauty as well. So people made artworks that they gave to to leaders. So um, that's just one example of you know how you can think creatively or differently about um, action and advocacy and how that flipping those um, assumptions about what it means can can bring forth a kind of resilience and um, 
and hope. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Carla, anything you've got to add there? Any thoughts about, yes, ad- advocacy? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think Chloe's 100% right. Some of the best ways to deal with these feelings is to, to you know, give yourself that sense of action, power, activism. Um, you know, for a lot of our young people, they're choosing environmental science um, to go into. Um, and I know, I know for a fact, because I've spoken to so many of these amazing young people at university Um recently um and you know when you ask them the why for them it's because they want to feel like they have some sense of power um they they kind of figured out that if they became environmental scientists they'd be some of the first people on the ground when um, projects are being established and so they can have a voice in shaping and changing how those projects and major developments go and um, you know a couple of states now have implemented design with country protocols um, which is somewhat premature because they're still establishing some of the frameworks for it but the thought process behind it is very meaningful for First Nations people in the sense that um, you know, it's quite complex, but on a basic level, it's it's respecting country. Um, you know, it's not building a whole heap of housing developments on a water course. <laughs> um, you know, things such as that. So the basics of um, understanding that country, respecting that country, its purpose, its ecosystem, and everything that it gives, and not taking away from that when you're um, developing major projects such as bridges, tunnels rail network, so on and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, I'll be very excited to see how that progresses in states such as Victoria and New South Wales. And then um, I'm sure that we'll, it will be adapted in many other states. Um, so it'll be very interesting to track the progress of that. Um, and all of these things are being spurred on by our exceptionally amazing young minds, which is the majority of the First Nations community at this time is under the age of 30. And I just think to myself, you know, for me, the reason I do what I do is for the young people um, and the reason that what they do is also for the future young people. So even these young people are thinking like elders <laughs> already um, and, and you know, that is spurred by the fact that they want to feel like they have some self-determination, some sense of power and autonomy over supporting and helping this country to actually thrive and be what it should be. Great. Thanks, Carla. Charles, psychology for a safe climate have developed a model for um, responding to climate distress in response to climate crises. Can you tell us about this model and how it helps both practitioners and clients? Yes, look, thank you. And and look, thank you so much, Chloe and Carlo. I hope that, well, I think very much what you've said accords with our model and kind of adds other dimensions. Um, but so, look, I'll I'll go through it briefly. It was really a model that we um, developed when we were starting a um, professional development uh, series of webinars to uh, help people to become more climate aware practitioners. Um, so I'll just kind of go through the different elements of it. There are six elements. The first element is presence, which is really being with the uncertainty and discomfort of the climate reality. As we know, the climate situation is dire and getting worse and particularly distressing uh, to, uh, to, to engage with, uh, especially without uh, any support. Now, the, a key part of our model is uh, emotions, um, feeling and expressing our emotional response to the climate reality. So many people say to us, I've been involved in, aware of climate change for years, but I've never talked about how I felt about it. Um, So our workshops, which are about feelings, uh, have been the core of our work. They create an uh, expression for the emotional impact of climate change, hopefully in a very safe space. Before COVID, we used a lot of art, creative work as a way of discussing feelings of climate distress in small groups uh, with also an an aspect of uh, uh, self-care using meditation as well. During COVID, we pivoted, as one did, and uh, uh, we used Zoom and used breakout rooms uh, with three people taking it in turn for one to talk and the other two to listen very attentively. 
An example of an open question in those breakout rooms was something like, when I think about climate change at the moment, some feelings that arise for me are. So we found that that was and still is a very powerful process, actually. It's actually something that COVID and Zoom has, has given us. And it's very important also for us as practitioners uh, to be aware of our own climate distress. We'll talk about that a bit, perhaps a bit, a bit further on. But really, this model is not just about our clients, but about ourselves as well. Um, connection, uh, the next element, is vital. Witnessing and sharing our emotional response with others. People are surprised and relieved that others feel the same way. Listening and being listened to are so important. This is why we do offer our support workshops for groups, to allow the power of mutual connection in a safe environment. And this emotional connection can itself create hope and resilience. So we've worked with a number of different groups, started off with uh, activist and uh, climate-related groups, um, but now, more, now we reach uh, much more widely to health-related mental health groups, communities, uh, policymakers, teachers, etc. We also started running uh, what are called online climate cafes, which have been very successful and also intervision groups, which allow people to share their climate journeys. The next element, the fourth element, is the context, allowing, uh, acknowledging, I mean, the impact of sociopolitical and environmental contexts. As we know, Western civilization has developed views of nature as subservient to man, which is so different from First Nations and other cultures. The neoliberal philosophy moves us even further away from care for others and for our environment and to a more entitled view, including ongoing extraction of fossil fuels. On the current political level, the context is clear. Climate science and implications have not been fully acknowledged by any government and not acted on with the urgency required. The next element is the purpose one, which has been talked about a bit already. It's very hard to feel uh, hope in the climate crisis. The situation, both the climate and the political situation, encourage pessimism. The climate situation evokes much despair. How can we find hope? As Chloe has said, hope can be found in what's called active hope. Um, devised by Joanna Macy, which is really grounded in a sense of purpose, meaning and engagement, regardless of the external situation. And this is a sort of, well, what she was also referring to as meaning-focused meaning coping. So this is very important. Maintaining a sense of purpose helps us keep going in the face of almost unbearable reality. And as health professionals, we know about that as well. The final element, number six, resilience. All the previous elements can lead to emotional resilience in the context of the climate crisis. To acknowledge feelings and share them, to validate and be validated, to find purpose, hope and meaning can give us strength to be present to the climate reality. Practicing self-care and self-compassion are a vital part of resilience. We really need to practice self-care. Such self-care has already been talked about by Chloe and Carla, how important it is to have time with others, internal reflective time, time in nature, perhaps particularly, creative time, just unfocused, relaxing time and exercise, and also equally important, what we don't do. So, for example, to really limit our focus time and uh, screen time. So all these are also very important in terms of avoiding burnout, which uh, is a risk for anybody who's engaged with the climate crisis. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Charles. That's a really interesting model and really, really relevant 
Um, so can you tell me why is it important for mental health practitioners to be aware of their own climate distress so that they can help others? Well, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think uh, if a practitioner is unaware of their own climate feelings, it is very difficult for them to help others. They need to be aware of their own climate distress to really be able to fully empathise and understand others. So this is something very important. And it's also very important, I think, for practitioners to really acknowledge something of the climate reality, if you like, as well. Because if people come to them saying, look, uh, I, I think humanity is doomed, then uh, we need to be able to uh, answer those sort of questions and talk about whether people have children or not. And I've heard also a lot of stories of uh, uh, mental health practitioners who tend to not validate environmental concerns, and this can, yeah, really create a lot of problems for for the for the the individual. Um, another reason why it's really important to face up to um, you know to how we feel is is in sessions to make sure that we do actually allow ourselves to listen to the person in front of us rather than if we've got unprocessed climate feelings, either whether we're sort of in denial to some extent or really very uh, uh, involved with climate, that we don't hijack the session from the patient, if you like. So I think that's an important factor as well. Of course. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Thank you. Chloe, you've developed creative workshops about the connections between climate change and mental health. Tell us about these and why they've been important. Thanks. I guess I can pick up on something Carla said about the, the clinical setting. And, you know, obviously it's such an, it, the therapeutic relationship is incredibly important and clinicians are incredibly important. But we also know that a lot of people um, find it hard to engage with those spaces, whether it's access or, you know, trauma or, um, you know, just the general awareness that they exist. And so I guess a part of the remit of my team at Black Dog Institute is um, exploring community-based responses to support people in their mental health. And uh, one of our big focus is the role of the arts and the cultural sector in offering that support. And so that's been something that I've really been sitting with and trying to um, develop over the past couple of years is how can we harness creativity and the arts and these amazing communal and public spaces that the arts offer to provide support for communities um, in this time of climate crisis. And as I said, it's still a work in progress, but we've um, done a wonderful um, workshop actually that Charles and I co-facilitated, which in Melbourne, um, we which was a wonderful process to develop. Unfortunately, it was delivered on a, um, in a gallery um, sponsored by ClimArt. So for those of you who don't know, they're a gallery dedicated to the climate emergency. So every program that they deliver has some response to climate change. And we developed this amazing workshop. Unfortunately, it was um, intervened with by climate change because there were massive floods in Melbourne, I think that was, it was a floods the night before the workshop. So our reach wasn't as large as it might have been, but that was just an example of, um, you know, offering, um, and I know Psychology for a Safe Climate have also done similar work in kind of um, museums and public spaces to offer support that's really accessible and engaging and uses um accessible and engaging methods to invite people to share experiences and connect um, and um, kind of process collectively what's going on in the world. Um, and so, yeah, that's something that I think um, holds incredible potential and that we know from the literature people want to, to talk about this in a non-pathologizing way. They might not want to seek support from a clinician um, or if they do, they might then want to go on and continue to work through what's going on in a in a community setting so um, I'm really interested in the yeah how we can continue to harness these spaces and these approaches going forwards terrific terrific 
So many practitioners joining us today will be interested in how we can notice and ask about climate distress with clients and patients and how to best support people experiencing this. Chloe, what does your research say about this? You've just touched on this, I guess. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't specifically researched this, so I guess I could um, comment on that anecdotally. And I do think Charles and Carla might have, um, I'm sure you have interesting things to add, but I, I think there's a kind of sensitivity to context that's required. So um, you can have visual prompts, for example, in your um, in your clinic or in your office that show that you're a climate aware practitioner. Um, so for example, um, does, I don't know if Psychology for a Safe Climate have a poster or it might be another group that do. So a kind of a visual prompt that might invite conversation. And it's about listening. I think that's a really huge part of it is, you know, we're not going to ask people, so you're really worried about the climate crisis, like might not be appropriate for everyone. But if you start to hear people talking about not wanting to have children or um, their fears and worries about the future and what they're seeing in the news, then that can be the invitation to go into a bit of a deeper conversation and find out more. And these are things that's that clinicians have expertise in across any number of presentations. Um, but just being open and, and knowing your own um, openness to it in the first instance, kind of Charles, you know, talking about the importance of noticing what's going on in yourself and then inviting a response from others if it's, if it is concerning them. Great. Charles, your thoughts. Yeah, look, I, I had, a, had a few thoughts. One, one of them is that uh, it's actually a difficult issue for, for people to bring up in a, in, a, in, a, in a psychology or mental health setting sometimes because I guess both we and our, and our clients have the idea often that really uh, what uh, psychology is about is talking about what's going on in one's mind and in close relationships but not necessarily about the natural environment. You know, many people uh, work in uh, offices in cities rather than what Carla was saying, where people kind of go outside and have a walk, for example. So it's not conducive necessarily, necessarily to bring it up. So I think one needs to listen carefully. But I think also, I think in, at an initial interview, it can often be important perhaps to actually have a sort of very general question about what do you think about the state of the world or something like that, which actually allow, sort of creates a bit more of a space for, for people to talk about uh, such issues. I love that idea. I had never thought of that. I think I'll include that in my, yeah, it's a great thought. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Carla, your thoughts? Um, <clears throat> I think to myself when I was going through those emotions and those feelings when I was a young adult and I didn't really understand them. Um, it was hard to express that. And I felt a little silly, um, you know, once the situational distress stuff wore off um, and, you know, my clinician didn't really acknowledge that the feelings could have been associated with this pretty significant um, you know, flood event that I'd lived through um, because everyone else around me had kind of got back to business as usual, um, whereas I was still sitting in these feelings. Um, and I think many mob who aren't as connected with their culture or who are younger and haven't had the chance to really um, connect with their elders um, will feel that exact same way and they won't acknowledge or even know that the feelings that they're feeling are innately connected to a climate event or the stresses around um, the impacts of climate on country. Um, and it's because it's innately spiritual um, what we're feeling and that connection and, and why it's coming from that. And it's grief. It's grief manifesting at the end of the day. It's a grief for the loss of land. It's a grief of disempowerment. Um, it's a grief of lack of self-determination. And it's because of that spiritual connection to the country. Um, that's sustained us for thousands and thousands of years. It's in our DNA. Um, it's the fact that many of us believe that our old people still reside in the country and their spirit lives here and um, that every single rock and river and creek um, is alive and has a spirit and has a feeling um, and acknowledging that. Um, so it's really important for clinicians to um, acknowledge that 
when mob present, we present really differently. Um, and while we might not be in immediate situational distress, many of the feelings that we're feeling um, will look like situational distress. <laughs> um, and it is coming from that underlying grief. So the, the things that have benefited me the most and the people in my immediate network is reconnecting with the country, um, you know, getting ourselves out into um, country. For me, um, you know, my people are island people and um, we're also mountain people, so we're sea and mountain people. So for me, I feel a great sense of peace um, and I feel like my batteries are being regenerated um, when I get myself off to the island and do a spot of camping or go fishing or I head up the mountain and just chill. <laughs> um, and that's because of that ancestral spiritual connection to those particular spots. And so it's really important to tap into that. Um, if you are, you know, working alongside an Aboriginal health service, there are fantastic social workers within that setting that can connect those people with local mob um, and help them to, um, you know, have a support system to work through those feelings. The reason that the Koori Mail, um, you know, response was so well received is because it was people working with each other, um, you know, that sense of sharing and collaboration um, and understanding that they were getting from each other in that group context that was so important and so valuable. So, um, you know, looking for those opportunities where you can see that person's, you know, really mimicking a lot of, of the signs of situational distress but might not be in immediate situational distress and and trying to work with them on, on ways in which they can implement that reconnection with their culture and their country um, into the clinical framework as well. Yes. Uh, so yeah. really important to think of those things. Great, Carla. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. So if we think about each of your top tips for practitioners for ways they can best support people experiencing climate distress, Chloe, what would you say? Wow, top tips. Yeah. <laughs> Come back to listening, being authentic, um, providing, you know, some for some people this might be the only space that they've been able to voice their concerns or they might not yet know how to voice them. So listening and reflecting are like the cornerstones, I think not only in clinical, but in other settings too. And that's whether, you know, I, people ask, have asked me, I've got so many concerns. I don't know how to share them with other people. And I say, well, sometimes that's, it can also be a listening exercise for yourself to understand where other people are at and to what, what level of that conversation you can bring to them. Um, so it's kind of perhaps Listening in general for everyone is a good thing. Yeah, great. Charles? Totally agree with what Chloe just said. Um, I guess I would just add uh, for anybody sort of working professionally in the, with climate uh, distress, they do need to be aware of their own climate distress. And I think anybody also in the area really needs to to um, uh, to, to, to have as much self-care uh, as possible and care, care for each other. Yeah, great. Thank you, Charles. And Carla, final word to you. <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing I can really um, encourage is to get your local community in which you're working with um, and to take guidance um, from them and build your own cultural capability, especially when it comes to understanding the spiritualism connections to culture um, and country. Um, and then just have an open mind um, and, uh, yeah, just be guided by um, First Nations voices at the end of the day and be a really strong ally because if you're a strong ally and then you apply that to your clinical practice, um, you'll be able to help us in the right way. Thanks, everyone, for your contributions today and your yeah incredible wisdom that each of you have brought um, today. I would just like to um, let people know about some e-mental health tools our listeners know. Um, we So Black Dog Institute have a whole lot of evidence-based online tools um, that can be used to support you, but also your clients and patients. So My Compass is a terrific resource. Um, we have many, many resources from Psychology for a Safe Climate. Uh, the website link will be put in the chat now. I really encourage you to peruse the resources here. A lot of thought has gone into these and in my opinion, they're excellent. Um, so thank you, Charles and Psychology for a Safe Climate for putting those together. And finally, Beyond Blue has a resource, what is climate anxiety and how it can be managed? So that might be useful 
useful um, for listeners to have a look at too. In terms of practitioners supporting your own mental health, the Essential Network is a really great resource available on the Black Dog Institute website. I particularly draw your attention to the burnout module, which we've had a lot of great feedback on and um, yeah, I think that can be a really useful thing, particularly in this space of climate um, distress and getting in tune with our response to the climate reality. Thank you again, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au. 